First of all, we had uh, the question uh, uh, about understanding uh, of time in Kala Chakra, why it is a circle of time. Uh, uh, if uh, there is such name, there should be some explanations or a kind of uh, time. Question of time in uh, Kala Chakra. Time is uh, time is our enemy. If you think about it, we have uh, birth, and then uh, aging with some sickness, and uh, death. So uh, time marks the uh, passage of uh, each of our lifetimes. And uh, each time that we uh, die, then we're reborn. And uh, we certainly aren't always reborn as humans, sometimes as a worm, sometimes as uh, all sorts of uh, undesirable things. And in each lifetime, when uh, uh, we're fortunate enough to have a precious human rebirth, then we have to uh, go through the whole process of learning and uh, studying and practicing and so on to uh, catch up to uh, where we were, you know, previous time in our practice. You know, it'll be a little bit, because of the habits, a little bit easier, but we might have built up some terrible habits in the meantime, in between, with other rebirths as uh, some animal or ghost or whatever. And so uh, that's really a problem. Isn't it? So we want to uh, overcome the uh, detrimental effects of time with uh, uh, the attainment of enlightenment. So in the uh, uh, infogram of the uh, Kala Chakra Yidam, we have uh, various parts of the body which represent different uh, ways of measuring time. Time is defined as, the, as a measurement of change. So we have uh, various aspects which uh, represent the uh, uh, way in which we measure the passage of time externally with the uh, passage of uh, uh, the sun, the moon, you know, the uh, heavenly bodies. And uh, we also have another level of representation in the infogram, which, infographic, I'm sorry, which is uh, the internal passage of time with the uh, uh, cycles of breath that we take during the day. So that's the significance of uh, time uh, in Kala Chakra, at least one level of the significance of time. It uh, is the measurement of samsara, and we want to overcome it. But uh, please, when we say uh, going beyond time, that doesn't mean that there is some realm of liberation that uh, is, uh, uh, there's no time there and no space. And this we have in uh, some Indian philosophies, but that's not in Buddhism. Time is a measurement of change. When we talk about going beyond time, we're going beyond the uh, samsaric uh, cycles, which, have, which are cycles of time. So, what other questions? Pardon? Is it all about time? So, the, the, is it all about time? Well, <laughs> struggling it, for questions here. Um. <laughs> is there any special experience of this overcoming uh, in uh, practice, in yogic in, uh, uh, practice? Я пытаюсь добавить, спрашиваю, неужели это все относительно времени, может быть, есть какие-то еще объяснения относительно самого переживания этого выхода за пределы времени в йогическом опыте, достигаемого? In order to really understand what's going on in Kala Chakra, we need to understand the basic theory of what Kala Chakra is all about. Of course, I mean, you ask about the practice. If you're talking about the practice of uh, uh, generation stage and complete stage, um, you know, it follows the, the basic uh, structure of uh, any Anutra Yoga Tantra practice. It has its special features, of course, but uh, in general, 
it uh, fits into the uh, um, general structure that we have in other tantras. So, uh, of course, there are special features of uh, how you uh, um, describe the uh, form body of the yidam on the, uh, the generate on the complete stage when uh, it's actually uh, generated not just in the imagination. This is quite uh, special in Kala Chakra. Uh, but uh, realistically speaking, we're not going to reach that stage uh, now. We're going to, if we're going to do Kala Chakra practice, we're working on the generation stage. And the generation stage is uh, uh, much more complex than we find in uh, most other tantras. But it is basically a visualization practice. So the uh, complete stage, the second stage of uh, Tantra practice is only uh, realistically engaged in if we've completed the successfully the generation stage, first stage. So that means that uh, we have uh, attained a perfect shamatha, which is a stilled and settled state of mind, so perfect concentration for four hours, no wandering, no dullness, nothing like that, on the complete visualization of the mandala with 722 figures in it. And because we're doing, uh, I mean, and first of all, that's just the rough generation stage. The subtle generation stage is when you're able to have that uh, concentration with the entire mandala and all the figures in a tiny dot uh, at the uh, um, uh, middle of the brow. And wow. then that multiplying into one, into two, into four, into eight, and bringing it back, and so on. That's the subtle generation stage. And because we are using the uh, Anutra Yoga Tantra method of uh, gaining shamatha, we attain a state of vipassana as well, simultaneously. So you attain a joint state of uh, shamatha and vipassana by doing these uh, uh, subtle uh, generation stage practices with the uh, drops in the mandala in the drops. So a stilled and settled mind of shamatha joined with an exceptionally perceptive uh, state of mind of vipassana. So that means of the five paths you know, it's generally called the path of accumulation, uh, um, application, seeing, meditation, and no more learning, that uh, we've achieved the second of them, the path of preparation, or I, I call it the applying path of mind. Uh, we've achieved that already before, you know, as a, the point where you are when you start the complete stage of practice. That means that we've already achieved the first pathway of mind, the so-called path of accumulation or building up pathway or state of mind, which means that we have already attained unlabored bodhicitta. That means that we don't have to go through any line of reasoning. You know, everybody's been our mother, all of that. We don't have to go through any of that. We can just automatically, wah, bam, we have a full bodhicitta all the time. With that, you have the first pathway of mind. So, although it uh, is nice and helpful to uh, know all the stages in Kala Chakra practice all the way up to enlightenment, so we have a road map, but let's be realistic about it. You know, the, especially the complete stage practices are unbelievably advanced. So let's start with a strong foundation in Sutra. And slowly, when, on the basis of that foundation, get into the generation stage practice with the sadhana. And uh, for the generation stage, there are uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I asked him uh, what type of uh, generation stage practices would be suitable for foreigners who have a great deal of enthusiasm and want to practice. He suggested that uh, 
they uh, get into it, it gradually, since uh, the mandala is so complex and there are so many figures. So he suggested a slightly abbreviated, not terribly short, but uh, in any case, slightly abbreviated from the full form that is uh, done in the monasteries, uh, a, uh, a single deity form, then a nine deity form, then mind mandala form, and then full body speech and mind mandala form of the sadhana. You can find all of these uh, sadhanas, uh, at least in English, on my website. Now, there's also the uh, Kala Chakra Guru Yoga, six session Guru Yoga. That is not a sadhana. It is a uh, six session Guru Yoga, which is uh, practiced uh, uh, with a commitment to do that six times a day in the Gluk tradition in order to keep the 19 samayas, or close bonding practices, with the five Buddha families. And uh, six-session yoga is uh, a practice that we find uh, that can be done with any yidam, any neutral yoga yidam. The generic form of it, the most general form, you have uh, uh, Vajrasattva and Vajradhara as uh, the yidam form. And that is in accordance with Guhya Samaja, which is the main uh, Anutra Yoga Yidam practice in the Galuk tradition. The one book. that Tsongkhapa wrote the most about. But uh, we can substitute Yamantaka or Chakrasamvara or Vajrayogini uh, as uh, the, the Yidam form in this practice. And likewise, we can substitute Kala Chakra. So, uh, in the uh, Kala Chakra succession, Guru Yoga, uh, we uh, have, uh, in addition to the uh, Yidam form, the Guru in front of us, and then ourselves as uh, Kala Chakra, we have a, uh, a few things added to it uh, from the Kala Chakra sadhana and some of the uh, Kala Chakra uh, masters who uh, uh, teach this. Uh, say that we can add a few more aspects from the sadhana into it as well. And some gurus have even uh, instructed people to do retreats on the basis of the Kala Chakra succession guru yoga. So this is very good. However, still not the actual full sadhanas. So as I uh, tried to uh, explain a little bit in terms of the relationship uh, of the self with the yidam, uh, we need to be uh, not arrogant with our Kala Chakra practice, whatever level it is that we're doing it. We need to be a bit humble and realize that uh, this is a very vast uh, practice, unbelievably advanced and uh, there's a, a long, long way of going to uh, be able to actually attain enlightenment through this method. So be a little bit modest. Now, when practicing any of these, uh, the Guru Yoga or the, uh, uh, any of the uh, levels of extensiveness of the uh, sadhana, I think it's very important to uh, remember that uh, everything in these visualizations is an infographic. Everything represents something. So the various element discs and the seed syllables and all of these things that uh, occur uh, within our body as a yidam, these are also infographic in nature. And this is where a basic knowledge of the Kala Chakra teachings, the theory, uh, come in and uh, are very, very helpful in making uh, the practices meaningful. Otherwise, it's just a cartoon. So we don't want our Kala Chakra practice to be just playing the Kala Chakra cartoon every day, do we? So the <laughs> theory, then uh, we go back to our discussion of time. Time, the passage of time, in terms of samsara, 
is driven by what is known as the winds of karma. Very special topic discussed in Kala Chakra. Karma is talking about uh, uh, compulsiveness. It's compulsiveness with which uh, we act in deluded, confused ways, either constructive or destructive. You know, compulsively we act in a certain way or compulsively we speak in a certain way. We have no control over it, you know, based on previous patterns. In other words, from a Western point of view, well-greased neural pathways. And there's a certain energy that uh, is uh, part of what is driving this compulsiveness that goes along with it, the energy component of it, and that, in Kalachakra terminology, would be the winds of karma, subtle energy associated with this compulsiveness. And uh, these winds of karma occur internally as well as uh, externally. So internally, they uh, drive our uh, uh, behavior, if you look at it on a gross level, and uh, externally, they drive the motion of the uh, planets, the sun, the moon, etc. You know, in the same manner as we have individual karma and collective karma, and both internally and externally, uh, those cycles with which uh, the winds of karma pass are the cycles of time. So time is driven, samsaric time is driven by the winds of karma. But uh, there's, more, there's a more subtle level of uh, the activity of these winds of karma uh, internally. And it has to do with the whole process of uh, appearance making. In other words, the making of appearances, how things appear to us. Uh, as part of the subtle body, which is samsaric, by the way, uh, there are um, channels and uh, chakras and winds and subtle uh, drops. All of these are subtle forms of physical phenomenon. And there are uh, four important uh, subtle drops that are uh, mentioned, actually the two sets of four. The way in which uh, our mind makes things appear to us is through a process of these winds of karma passing through one or another of these uh, drops, these four drops. So I always uh, try to uh, describe it in terms of uh, a paintbrush going into four buckets of paint. And so depending on which bucket you uh, put the paintbrush into, it paints a certain type of uh, appearance. So we have uh, the drop that is associated with making appearances uh, while we're awake, to what we perceive with our senses, and uh, a drop associated with the appearances that arise in our dreams. And by the way, when we say appearance, appearance just means that something that arises. So it's not just visual appearances. It could be an appearance of a sound, an appearance of uh, smell, taste, touch, some sort of, uh, um, you know, it could be anything that arises while we are awake or while we are dreaming. We don't just dream visually, we also, uh, there are sounds, there are physical sensations and so on. And then also we have a drop associated with the appearances that arise in deep sleep, sort of a darkness that arises. And then the fourth drop is uh, the appearances that arise, usually it's just called during the fourth occasion. And these are the occasion of a peak blissful experience, like for instance, orgasm. Um, so that's why just you have to realize that appearance isn't just visual, I'm talking about all the uh, components of an experience that appear, that arise. And uh, when uh, the winds of karma pass through 
one or another of these uh, drops, then as I say, it uh, uh, makes an appearance. So does it make an appearance on something? Well, yes, in Kala Chakra we speak in terms of uh, uh, particles, subtle particles. Well, we have a presentation of subtle particles in uh, uh, Sutra as well, in uh, Mahayana. There's no ultimately smallest uh, particle. You know, every particle can be divided further and further and further into parts. But nevertheless, conventionally, there are particles, and there are different types of particles, uh, specifically uh, particles of the various uh, elements, earth, water, fire, wind, and uh, space. Space, yes. Mm -hmm. And space. So five elements. In Kala Chakra, we also speak of a six-element uh, consciousness. And I think that uh, all of this uh, has to be understood in terms of uh, what we mentioned concerning the 24 arms and uh, body of Kala Chakra, representing as well as an infogram, infographic the 25 aspects of uh, reality described in the Samkhya system. So, I mean, we have uh, these uh, four occasions. Uh, you have them even uh, going back into the Upanishads. We have uh, uh, these uh, elements and so on also described in these non-Buddhist systems. This is because uh, in Kala Chakra we want to purify ourselves not only of inner and outer uh, samsaric aspects, but also of belief in uh, so-called samsaric systems. And uh, here, specifically, it is the Samkhya system. So, these winds of karma passing through these uh, four drops paint the appearances of truly established existence, you know, samsaric appearances, onto the the particles of these uh, six elements. There are external gross elements. There are also internal subtle elements. So we need the uh, understanding of voidness, that uh, these appearances of self-established existence, you know, as if things are just there, you know, supported by their own power, not dependent on anything else. We have to uh, realize with voidness the absence of anything in reality that corresponds to this. No such thing. And we need to do this in order to overcome the effects of uh, the uh, negative effects of uh, believing that uh, these appearances correspond to reality. And, you know, based on that, we have all the compulsiveness of our karmic actions also driven by these winds. So we want to stop all of that. So in this way, we overcome being under the control of samsaric time. So the uh, uh, various uh, chakras of, uh, with uh, visualization of elements, different colors, you know, in the form of different shaped disks, and the various syllables and so on that uh, we visualize uh, on them represent as an infographic, uh, sometimes the four drops, sometimes the uh, six elements, sometimes a combination of them, and so on. So it's very helpful to know what these represent, you know, why we're visualizing them, and uh, what we want to do is to overcome what they represent. Okay? So that's a little bit about the theory. Yeah, you have a question. Uh, so, um, uh, first, uh, um, uh, this uh, purification of uh, karmic winds, uh, is it something specific uh, for Kala Chakra or is it a common case uh, for all uh, tantric practices, uh, for different tantras such as Yamantaka and so on? Uh, the presentation of uh, the karmic winds is only found in the Kala Chakra teachings as far as I know. And uh, uh, the second question uh, is, uh, uh, you mentioned uh, truly established existence, uh, truly established existence. Uh, did you uh, use uh, this uh, term uh, 
uh, in the meaning of uh, one specific philosophical school or it is uh, 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 also common for uh, all four philosophical schools and uh, could you please briefly explain us the difference between uh, the objects of refutation uh, according to four philosophical <laughs> schools, <laughs> if possible. First of all, I should ask you, are you uh, asking this in terms of the uh, four Indian tenet systems, or are you asking this in terms of the uh, four uh, Tibetan traditions? Right, so I was asking about the uh, uh, four Indian tenet systems, which is good, because that I can answer. Oh. Okay. Truly established existence in the um, Vaibhashika and Sautrantika schools uh, is an uh, existence that is uh, established. In other words, you establish the. How do you establish? I mean, first of all, we have to, to uh, discuss what are we talking about when we're talking about uh, uh, these modes of existence. Uh, in my understanding, they're not actually a mode of existence. It's a mode or a manner of how do you establish that something exists? In Tibetan, it's Dembar Drupa, Satya Siddhi. In uh, Sanskrit, Drupa and Siddhi are the words to prove something, to affirm something. They're not the words existence. So, what proves that something exists? What establishes that it exists, according to uh, Vaibhashika and uh, Sautrantika, is that it performs a function. It does something. So, Vaibhashika says that uh, all um, existent phenomena are truly existent, because both uh, what I call static and non-static phenomena, things that change, they're affected by cause and effect, and things that don't change, they're not affected by cause and effect. Uh, Both of them perform a function, according to Vaibhashika. Static phenomena perform the function of serving as an object of cognition, according to Vaibhashika, therefore they also truly exist. Uh, I try to avoid the uh, English words permanent and impermanent because they have two meanings. Either they could mean that things change or don't change, which is uh, how they are primarily used, or they could mean something is temporary, it's impermanent, or something is eternal, it's permanent. So, uh, in, especially in the Galupa um, understanding of... Uh, or usage of the terms, they only use uh, the term to mean uh, static or non-static, changing or not changing. They don't use it to mean temporary or eternal. Uh, Some other uh, Tibetan traditions sometimes use it in that other meaning. By the way, each of these uh, four tenet systems has a slightly different uh, uh, explanation by uh, each of the uh, Tibetan traditions. So what I'm explaining here is the uh, Galukpa uh, uh, interpretation. The Sautrantikas say that, uh, well, actually only non-static phenomenon, phenomenon that participate in cause and effect are truly existent. Only those uh, actually uh, perform a function. Uh, and static phenomenon, like uh, categories, don't perform any function, they don't grow over time, they're not affected by anything, and so these are, uh, these lack truly established existence. So, they, uh, Sautrantikas differentiates objective phenomenon that perform functions and metaphysical phenomenon that uh, don't. Objective phenomenon are truly existent, which means that they actually do exist. And uh, the uh, Static phenomenon lack truly established existence, and so they um, 
don't have objective reality. They exist, but only in our imagination, in a sense, according to Sautrantika. So now we have uh, this division of uh, phenomenon that appear in uh, perception, sense perception. This is objective reality, objective phenomenon in uh, Sautrantika, and things that only uh, are involved in uh, conceptual cognition. These would be the static phenomenon categories in which we uh, see an object and we fit it into a category. Like uh, I see all these uh, um, objects in front of me and I fit them all into category of uh, human beings. So in these uh, um, Hinayana systems, truly established uh, existence is something which is um, valid. These Hinayana systems, Vaibhashika and uh, Sautrantika. So um, we can only establish the existence of these uh, things that lack true existence conceptually. So how do you establish the existence of these categories? You can only establish it in the sense that they appear in conceptual cognition. That's Sautrantika. Now we go to Chittamatra, and uh, Chittamatra um, distinguishes uh, between uh, so-called uh, dependent phenomenon or other-powered phenomenon. These are things that appear in uh, sense perception, even though it's only appearing in the mind. Nevertheless, there's sense perception. Uh, these are uh, uh, truly existent. These are true, these dependent phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what you see, what you hear, and so on, these are truly existent. Their existence is truly established because they don't depend on uh, conceptual cognition to cognize them. So these dependent phenomenon can be known by an aria, non-conceptually. We can also know them non-conceptually, but they are objects of an arya as well. Somebody who's had non-conceptual cognition of voidness. So you can have non-conceptual cognition of them. Dependent phenomenon, these are things that uh, are non-static, rise from causes and conditions, according to Chittamatra, are truly established. Yes, it was said. And they are truly established because you do not require conceptual cognition in order to establish their existence. Yes, it was said. Right, fine. And they can be known non-conceptually, for instance, by an aria. And they're also thoroughly established phenomenon referring to voidness. And even though that is uh, static... Nevertheless, because it can be known non-conceptually by an aria, it is also truly established. But then there are thoroughly conceptual, uh, totally conceptual, conceptual objects, like uh, categories, and they can only their existence can only be established conceptually in conceptual cognition. Therefore, they lack truly established existence, according to Chittamatra. So you asked a complicated question, so I'm sorry, you're getting a complicated answer. Now, and each of these schools defines truly established existence differently, I'm sorry. Now, Svatantrika, you know, Madhyamaka has two branches, Svatantrika and Prasangika. So first, Svatantrika says there is no such thing as truly established existence. Uh, they say that uh, uh, you can only establish the existence of anything in terms of uh, names and concepts for them. In other words, they are what the name and concept uh, for them refer to on the basis of imputation. Nevertheless, uh, all uh, validly knowable phenomenon have a self-establishing nature on their own side 
that enables for a correct imputation, a correct labeling by uh, concepts and designation by words. Nevertheless, um, the, the Svetantrika asserts that all validly knowable phenomena have on their own side a self-established nature which allows for, in conjunction with mental labeling, a correct mental labeling. So, for them, truly established existence is not only something that is uh, established independently of uh, uh, what a concept refers to, but also independently of having a self-established nature as well. That's truly established. Oh. So that's very, very complicated. I'm sorry. Okay, no, phrase by phrase. I phrase by phrase. Okay. Okay, I will leave out some of the more complicated points of this. If it's a... Uh, Truly established. Uh, yes, no, let's, let me find an easier way of saying it. Truly established, which they're refuting, would be something that uh, um, you can establish its uh, existence independently of uh, two things in conjunction with each other. One is concept and names. A name, uh, concept not, means like a category, I'm and a not, name. And then on the other side is a self-establishing nature, which has the defining characteristic that it would fit into that category yeah, of a concept or name. That would be truly established, and there's no such thing. So how do I establish that uh, all of these, uh, I just see colored shapes, you know, what I see in front of me, that all of them are human beings. Well, I can establish that they're human beings because I have a category of human beings that I'm perceiving them through, and all of them have defining characteristics on their side of being a human being. That's part of their self, that's the defining, that is the defining characteristics of their self-establishing nature. Like I look through a microscope at a cell and uh, uh, it, I identify it, I can establish it as a human cell because uh, I have a category of human and on the side of the cell there's a, a, a DNA that is, you know, I have fit that into the definition of what a human cell should have. So if it's like that, it's not, you know, truly established would mean independent of that. It's just there by itself as a human, human cell. Prasangika says that your assertion of uh, what lacks truly established existence in Svatantrika, that actually is truly established existence and that's false. Because there is no such thing as a self-establishing nature on the side of an object. So this is uh, what they refute as truly established existence. That it's either just established, that it's established either independently of uh, the conceptual framework or independently of conceptual framework in conjunction with a self establishing nature. So that's a little bit about the four tenet systems. Uh, a little bit complicated if uh, you haven't heard this before, but uh, extremely practical. Extremely, uh, if you approach them as uh, graded stages of uh, understanding, you know, refuting more and more uh, subtly, and work with what are the practical implications of thinking like that, uh, each of the systems. You know, not just, you know, some theory type of thing, but uh, what would it actually mean to view yourself and the whole world through this understanding. And then when you start working out all the implications, you see that uh, actually 
very, very helpful, each of these stages. Very, very helpful. If you're interested, on my website, <laughs> advertisement, of course, uh, in the uh, weekly courses section, uh, I taught uh, Lamrim over a period of many years, and the, uh, there are about 270 um, lectures on it, uh, not small. Hmm? 284 so far. And uh, it, the, they're divided into folders. So the last folder, which I believe is uh, folder number 33, is the uh, um, side discussion that I started on the uh, analysis, the practical application of the analysis of the four tenet systems concerning the voidness of the self with guided meditations on, uh, on this. I forget how many lectures are in there already, probably more than 20, I would guess. Uh, we've only covered <laughs> Vibhashika, Trantika, and Chittamatra so far. Um, we had to take a break well, I had too much work with the website, but I hope uh, later in the spring to be able to uh, continue it with uh, Svatantrika and Prasangika. But uh, there you'll find a very full uh, discussion of this uh, topic. Uh, but it's only in English so far. Uh, there are only audio files. We, they have all been transcribed, but uh, still not edited. So, what other questions? Sure. Um, I heard that uh, after uh, 22nd, December 22nd, uh, there are uh, 20 days uh, during which, um, uh, sorry, uh, sorry uh, during the uh, next 12 days, uh, um, all events uh, would characterize what will happen uh, uh, in the next year, in the whole next year, she heard uh, that it is written uh, in Kalachakra Tantra, something like that. And if uh, so, uh, then uh, what should be done in the practice of Kalachakra, because uh, uh, maybe we can turn uh, our karmic winds uh, to turn events of our life, uh, karmic events of our life, or maybe uh, we can uh, do it even in other tantric practices, in other ta uh, tantric systems uh, to change, uh, to turn events of our life. Well, I've never heard of uh, that uh, statement in the Kala Chakra teachings. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not there, it just means that I've never, so I don't know specifically, but uh, uh, there are certainly predictions of uh, the future. And like everything else in Kala Chakra, there are many levels of understanding it, and uh, many of them are uh, in terms of uh, uh, the future um, um, uh, battle and uh, victory in the battle and so on. That represents an internal battle against the uh, um, ignorance and overcoming the forces of ignorance and confusion. So they represent an internal struggle. So certainly doing Kala Chakra practice, but uh, by that I mean the full thing with the understanding of voidness and bodhicitta and all of that can certainly help us to uh, overcome these uh, negative forces. Any other questions? Thank you. Yeah, I will ask a question um, in English. So that was a question about truly established existence. So I want to add uh, the question that will somehow connected connect to this one. So in the practice of Kala Chakra, like in any other Andre Yoga practice, uh, there is a special way of meditating on voidness in which uh, we meditate not just on the, on the actual meaning of voidness, but also want to, um, to simulate uh, doing this with a clear light mind. So this is clear light mind is the subtlest Subtlest level of mind in the most efficient way uh, for gaining non-conceptual cognition of voidness. And why is most most efficient? Because this is uh, this level of mind um, doesn't have any grasping for true existence for true existence. Mm -hmm. So uh, my question about this grasping. So as I understand, this grasping 
refer to the Sanskrit uh, word graha and uh, has several meanings. Can you clarify these meanings, please? The uh, word graha in uh, Sanskrit or dzinba in uh, Tibetan literally means to take, to take something oh. or to hold something. So it has uh, two meanings, two stages. The first is to uh, take something as an object of cognition. And uh, when we speak in terms of uh, uh, truly established existence, then it means taking that appearance of truly established existence as an object of cognition. In other words, making that appearance and perceiving it, cognizing it. And uh, then the second meaning is to uh, take it as uh, corresponding to uh, reality, what actually conventionally exists. So in other words, believing that it corresponds to reality. So when we use the word grasping in English, it has that connotation of taking it to correspond to reality. So we grasp for it to uh, exist the way that it appears, but uh, it doesn't really convey that first meaning of just making that appearance and perceiving it. So in the process of working to attain enlightenment, first we have to uh, get our minds to stop um, believing that uh, this false appearance corresponds to reality. If we're able to do that, we become an, ar an arhat, liberated from samsara. And, uh, uh, but uh, to attain enlightenment, we have to uh, stop that uh, appearance-making of truly established or self-established existence, that first meaning of uh, um, grasping. Stop. Um, making that appearance arise and perceiving it. Even though, you know, uh, we don't believe it corresponds to reality, still, from habit, the mind makes that uh, projection. And remember, Kalachakra explained that the way that uh, the mind makes this appearance of truly established existence and perceives it is the winds of karma passing through one of the four drops, subtle drops of the four occasions. But uh, when we attain the clear light mind, the clear light mind uh, neither uh, produces this uh, um, appearance of truly established existence and doesn't perceive it, and it certainly doesn't believe that it corresponds to reality. So it's free of both. That's because uh, the uh, clear light mind is uh, withdrawn from the grosser levels of mind and uh, the grosser levels of wind, you know, of the energy. So it is withdrawn from the winds of karma. So because it's more subtle and withdrawn from the winds of karma, then it doesn't make these appearances of truly established existence through the four drops. And it certainly doesn't perceive it and it certainly doesn't believe in it. So for this reason, uh, when it perceives voidness, clear light mind, then it doesn't make voidness appear truly existent. So it is automatically non-conceptual, and not only non-conceptual, but free of making an appearance of truly established existence. Right, because you remember, according to the Glupa explanation, in sense perception, it's also non-conceptual, but nevertheless, because it's through the... Uh, um, drop of the awakened uh, condition, the winds of karma make an appearance of truly established existence, even in non-conceptual sense perception. So we're talking about non-conceptual perception of voidness, which is not through one of these four drops, uh, when it's done with a clear light mind. So thank you for your very good, you have one more question. <laughs> Well, we can give you a chance. That'll be the last question. Uh, the question is about uh, the practices of uh, um, uh, which, which would uh, support our long life. Uh, uh, he knows that there are different practices which help uh, to 
I'm sure a uh, long life uh, mm -hmm. for us, and maybe uh, uh, if somebody practices Kalachakra Tantra, uh, uh, also uh, uh, can find uh, such practice inside uh, uh, this uh, tradition. Are there some special practices uh, for those of us who maybe sometimes have uh, problems with our health and we would like to practice? Uh, as far as I know, I'm not aware of any long life practices specifically within Kala Chakra. Uh, but uh, then again, just because I have not heard of it doesn't mean that there might not be some. But just as uh, Yamantaka can recite Omani Pemi Hum, Kala Chakra can also do the long life practices of uh, White Tara, for example. But, uh, you know, the way that these long life uh, practices work is that uh, it. Uh, um, either uh, uh, directly causes the uh, positive uh, uh, karmic potentials that you have to ripen much more quickly, so it provides circumstances for living a long life. Uh, but if you haven't built up those positive uh, forces, you know, the, the positive karma, it's not going to help. You have to have something uh, uh, that can be uplifted and brought, you know, uh, more to the head of the line in terms of what uh, ripens. That's one method. It can, if you have the positive karma to live a long life, but uh, it is, uh, uh, what should we say, not foremost in terms of the karma that uh, potentials that will ripen. The circumstance of doing the long life practice will bring it, in a sense, to the head of the line, so that uh, this oh. is what will uh, uh, ripen. And conjunction, in conjunction with this, what can also happen is the second uh, process, which is that uh, these practices will bring uh, negative karma up front uh, to ripen in a very minor type of way, so that the obstacles you know, get uh, thrown out or eliminated that would prevent the long life. So it could be a twofold process sometimes. But you know, just because we our major practice is Kala Chakra doesn't mean that it is in any way contradictory with doing White Tara or Amitaya's uh, long life practices. As Kala Chakra, we can do them. Not every practice has to be found in the Kala Chakra literature. So I think we'll end here. On to uh, thank you very much. We hope whatever understanding, whatever positive force has been, up, has been built up by our meeting, may that act as a cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.